Congratulations, you've just been handed a huge new opportunity. Bravo. With it comes the need for new skills, skills you'll need to master in short order. Every year, Harvard Business School Executive Education helps executives like you develop the hard and soft skills it takes to succeed in new roles. This is your chance. Go. Start by going to hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. Welcome to the Managing Madrid Podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani. Joining me on, the, on the, the night of the World Cup final where Paul Pogba has dabbed his way to victory is Om Arvind and Gabe Lesra, who is driving from Ohio, I think. Um, and in a, in a weird role, I'm hosting and Gabe is, Gabe is joining the podcast. It, it always feels weird to do that, but sometimes we just got to do it. How are you guys doing? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for taking the hot mic uh, this I don't obviously have the questions in front of me, plus I'm in a car, so I don't think it'd be good for me to read it anyways. Well, we're happy to have you either way, and uh, it's always nice having your wisdom on the pod. Om Arvind, are you, what, is your, what is your feeling? I know you have strong opinions about Paul Pogba's dabbing. It was, the, it, it, it was a great, great World Cup, and then in that moment, it was all ruined. It all went to shit. Um, it, 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 was a, it was a fairly good game. Um, great World Cup to, to cap it all off. Um, arguably the best World Cup in recent memory. Definitely the best World Cup I've ever seen. Um, so it was just a really fun, I guess, month and a half. Um, yeah, and I'm glad to be on the pod with you guys. Well, Dude, I'm so, so depressed this World <laughs> Cup is over. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know if there's any sarcasm in that voice, Gabe. It's possible there might be, but none, none, okay, zero sarcasm. Okay, uh, I'm I'm kind of relieved. I, I I enjoyed the World Cup. It was phenomenal. The game today, it capped what to me. It just capped it all because the final itself was probably the most, maybe the most exciting final since maybe 98 where france just ran over brazil i i really enjoyed it like i i didn't enjoy the the final result because i was really rooting for croatia and to me like i think i i'll be curious to know what you guys think of this but to me you know france was kind of an underwhelming champion um but they they did it they had some brilliant individual play especially in the second half they i think they defended well overall um but the game. But what I'm relieved about is just that we can really officially just look forward to Real Madrid stuff, preseason stuff. Pablo Lopetegui is going to build the squad. It's what Sunday night this week is the first week officially. I think Lopetegui actually has the rest of the team under his his wing. Um, not the whole team, obviously. The ones who are at the World Cup they have breaks, but like other people like Bale, Benzema, some of the Castilla players. We'll kind of find out. I think this week what happens to some of the players on loan, where they're going and stuff. So I'm I'm kind of excited to just turn off all the international stuff a little bit so so i i have a lot of thoughts about the final i don't know how much i should go into it but 
I, I just say that I think people aren't giving France enough credit. I, I think it's a valid point to say that Deschamps, he didn't get, um, he didn't, he didn't take this team to their full potential and make them into this, you know, world beating side that would destroy point in six nil like we know is possible. But I mean, that's not really the point at the end of the day. It's a very short tournament. Um, I think he took lessons from Portugal's victory in, in Euro 2016 and saw a quote-unquote more negative style of football as the way to go, which it's generally more favorable to play that way in international football. And look, France were an extremely good defensive side throughout the tournament. I think in the final, people didn't give France enough credit. I think in the first half, Croatia were slightly the better team. I think Croatia pressed really well. They suffocated France, and France were not able to counterattack in the way that they're used to. But if you go back and look at the quality of the chances and the quantity, Croatia didn't create a whole lot. Um, and I think there was potential there for Croatia to be the better side, but their possess- what they were doing in possession wasn't that effective. Modric was playing at right back basically a lot of the game. That The midfield was generally flat, and essentially they were really, really reliant on, on, on winning second balls from direct passes to progress play and deep crosses from their right back. Um, and that... It's a decent way to play, but it's not a very controlled way of of, of progressing progressing play and creating chances. And it's always going to be difficult when you play that way against a, against a team like France who defends that well. And I was just thinking that in the second half, they're going to get a couple counterattacks that'll kill the game off, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, it took a couple brilliant strikes that wouldn't go in most of the time, but at the end of the day, I I, I don't think. You know, Croatia were that much better than France, as people were saying. I actually think it was fairly even. I think a 1-1 draw would have been the fair result going going into extra time. Um, but, you know, football isn't about fairness. It's it's whoever scores more at the end of the day. And it was, it was 4-2, some really crazy goals. France got a bit of luck with Griezmann's dive. Um, and the penalty incident, which was controversial, I personally thought it was a penalty. But at the end of the day, it was an exciting final. Tactically, it was a bit underwhelming, but... It was a good final, especially compared to the last two we had, which were really, really boring, Boring, I think, 2010 and 2014. I loved... I mean, I actually thought this game... I totally agree. This game was really good. Um, I don't... I do think that was a pretty clear penalty, and I'm pretty surprised to see any controversy about it, but... Yeah, I'm surprised. Um, well, yeah, I totally agree with everything you were saying, Um I think so I think to the point about whether Croatia was better or not. I think the first half in many ways clouded. And I want to say clouded. I think people had made up their mind at halftime regardless of what happened in the second half that Croatia was going to deserve to win this. And yeah, I think I, agree. I think that may may have clouded people's uh, I guess evaluation of the game and proper analysis that France, you know, by the end of it their expected goals were higher. Um, those two back-to-back goals from Pogba and Mbappe, the 3-1, the 4-1, totally deflated Croatia. Um, and I think, and Om, you you had tweeted about this, I agreed with you also, that Croatia's mental resilience, yeah, like throughout the entire tournament, was fantastic. Just going behind the way they did, keeping their head. I think the experience of Modric and Rakitic to just calm the team yeah. down was huge in that. And we were always surprised, like, at, at this, at some point, these guys get tired, right? Like, they're, like, they're not young. They've been playing three million minutes in a row. And I think when Pogba and Mbappe scored those, I think you finally saw, like, just defeat in the yeah. body language. 
especially yeah. Mbappe's goal, there was something about it. It reminded me of Marcelo's goal in the 2014 Champions League final. Like, mm. just the way he just just ran through the heart of the uh, of the midfield and just skived that ball into the back of the net. Yeah. There's just something about the way those types of goals that are scored that just kind of ends the contest. And it was pretty much over from there. Um, and I think... Mbappe, people, a lot of people are saying this is his his breakout moment. I mean, he he broke out in the 2016-17 season. This is just him enhancing his reputation. Right. You know, I think people who usually don't watch football got to see, you know, one of the great young stars of all time. Um, and it was just really fantastic to see him play this tournament. And I hope we can get our hands on him some point in the future. I don't think it's going to happen this season. But I'll shut my mouth there because I think there are questions about that. Like, who do I just want to go back for a second to, to talk about France's tactical positioning. And I just, just to underscore what Om, what you said earlier, like, I think, I think that's a really good point that Deschamps took a lot from his loss to Portugal and that these, unfortunately, these tournaments are really built for defensive sides. If you can be compact defensively, you can win a lot of one-off games, right? And matches it. If you can just get, you know, prevent the other side from frustrate them, prevent them from scoring, you can do it. And it's it just is a little jarring to see a French side with this much attacking talent um, execute that type of game plan. But when you think about it, this French this French side also has a, a tremendously strong defensive line, right? Zumtiti, Varane, Pavard, and Pavard, and... Lucas Hernandez, yeah. Right. And that's actually a really good defensive unit. And then Conte in front of them, this is going to be a team that can always like whip out an like, extremely strong defensive performance. And this was one of the first matches of the tournament where they scored allowed more than one goal. I think also their problem today was I, like in the, in the first half, I thought they did everything like right pretty well without the ball. They pressed, they unnerved France. The only time France actually looked threatening was they just basically just get the ball to Mbappe high up the pitch and I thought uh, Strunic did a good job just defending him and I, th- I thought they dealt with Mbappe well to be honest like in the second half it, it was obviously a different story for obvious reasons but I, I wanted to throw a question at you guys um, Mateo Kovacic played 180 minutes in this entire tournament do I know we all love him I, I guess for, with Real Madrid it's unfortunate he's behind Kroos and Modric with Croatia it's Rakitic and Modric do you, do, if you're Dalic, like, do, is it a bit crazy to you guys that he just didn't play at all? Like, this is a team that went deep in the tournament, deep into extra time in, in like, three, was it three of the knockout rounds, I think? Mm-hmm. Does he play more? Should he play more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes. There's no there's no question in my mind. You, you Keon, you tweeted out that, I think there was, I, I haven't confirmed, but I think there was some issue with injury with his shoulder, which may have been why he didn't play. But you tweeted, like, this This applies throughout the tournament. You tweeted that they're facing a deep defensive block and you need someone to break the line. So why the hell is Kovacic not on? I mean, that's his specialty. I mean, if there's one thing that stands out about him, it's his ability to break lines. And overall, I was not happy with the way Dalic yeah. constructed his midfield throughout the entire tournament. It Tactically, you know, his personnel selection wasn't great until... It started to look better when he moved to a three-man midfield and out of the Modric, uh, Rakitic double pivot. And he only did that in the semifinals, I think. And I would have really liked well before the World Cup to try some sort of diamond midfield because Croatia's strength 
is their midfield. That's that's what wins them all their games. So I think to have stuffed as many midfielders as possible, I think given how 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 the international stages tactically, I think a diamond would have worked fairly that fairly well. Maybe not against France in the final, but I think throughout the tournament to see something like Brozovic as the defensive midfielder and you know, maybe Rakitic is the number 10 or something like that. I mean, I, there was definitely ways to get all of them out on the pitch. And I think it could have looked really nice. There could have been a lot of good central play. But instead, what we had was, you know, the, the central midfielders really far apart, really flat. Modric, you know, in the pocket in between the center back and, and the right back, dictating from there, running down the channels. Like, it was, it was really weird to see. And it wasn't all that effective and they had to rely on deep crosses a lot on, on winning second balls as I mentioned relying on and Perisic's runs off the shoulder it, it it wasn't the type of controlled dominant midfield performance that Croatia could have produced throughout the tournament and I think at the end of the day in the final it came to hurt them because they had a lot of possession their pressing was very very good even in the second half it was pretty good but they just couldn't make any other possession count and I think it comes down to tactics at the end of the day. Well, I think, um, <clears throat> again, Kovacic is like in this awkward situation where like <laughs> both his national team and his club, like they're stacked at that position. I would say his two options, Dalic's two options, were one is to drop Brozovic, who I thought had a good tournament all, all in all. He played well. The other one was once he, in one game, he dropped Brozovic and, and put in Kramaric which is, I, I, to me, Kramaric is, you could argue he's a starter. He's really, just a really good, efficient player. He could even play with Mandzukic. But I would, I would almost think that, I think Bro- Brozovic, to an extent, is expendable because Kovacic can play in a double pivot. You basically had Rakitic deep in, like, there were, was it the game against England or, or Russia? I can't remember where he was basically playing as a center back. I think it was, it was Russia. Russia, yeah. it was so weird. Rakitic was dropping in between the center backs, which is okay. You want to overload the press. But then Modric was all the way over in the right back position. So there was no connection in midfield. Like, there was no way to progress the ball. It was it was horrific. Like, I, I was cringing so hard every time I saw that. And, and so was everyone on my timeline. It was... I mean, that, at the that end was of the- Dalic basically texted Zidane and be like, hey, where's Modric's <laughs> best position? He said right back. I and I just, this this worries me. Uh, sorry, Gabe. I, I'll just quickly finish this. This worries me because Modric's longevity has been really good, but for long portions of of last season, a little bit in sixteen, seventeen, and throughout the World Cup, he's essentially been playing a box to box role down the channel, and he's been logging huge amounts of kilometers on those legs, and that's not a good thing going forward when he's thirty two years old. I, I'd like him to be more like a roaming playmaker not have to do as much legwork as he's doing right now and i hope lopetegi can yeah. kind of solve that going forward because it's not great for his longevity so just to bring this back to to kovacic one of the things i mean i told i mean obviously this game and others have cried out for kovacic but i, I would also say that i i think om you and i were involved in interaction with someone on twitter where they they had said something like you know, Kovacic has only one option. It's leave Real Madrid to yeah, yeah. get more minutes. And I, I mean, I understand why one might feel that way and why Kovacic feels a little bit like he need, he he might need to do that. But I think that that's I think that that's short sighted when you consider both you know what you just said literally about Modric 
you know, having logging so many kilometers on his legs. And also when you have a new coach coming in who may be implementing new systems that might see you, you know, experimenting with your usage. And if I were Lopetegui, I'd make one, I'd make uh, retaining Kovacic one of my top priorities for the summer. You know, that and, and remind and telling Bale, like, yes, in fact, you are our guy. You know, those are the two, the two big things I would do. But like Kovacic, you know, really, I mean, he could have been used more in this World Cup. But the, the fact is that, again, you guys are right. He had, there was an overload at his position uh, on his national team. And there's a, a, there was a little bit of an overload at his position at Real Madrid. But he is, is like slowly building a case for himself as, as if not, not a certain everyday starter, then someone who should be among the first choices to, uh, to, in the rotation. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that you know, Lopetegui will see what he can bring to the side and, and will explain to him what, what he and his presence means to Real Madrid because obviously Kovacic needs more minutes. But I think it's time to, 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 to say, yes, you're going to get them because we need to rest Modric much more this coming season. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that Lopetegui will see that. So yeah, I, I agree 100%. Well, I think this, this discussion will, I think, extend itself into the questions because there's questions about, you know, lineup shuffling, squad juggling, and bringing this player and that player, and what happens to this player. Um, any concluding thoughts, gentlemen, about, it, it could be about the World Cup final, it could be about the World Cup. No one shares my sentiment that they're kind of relieved it's over. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess. I mean, I guess. I, I just like to mention on our last note, the protesters that came out reminded us that at the end of the day that this is still a highly politicized event yeah. and that as much as we want to, we cannot separate the politics of everyday life from football. Um, and I mean, the protesters were essentially trying to draw attention to to the various crimes that Putin has committed throughout his tenure as, 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 as leader in various roles of Russia. And that is something we should pay attention to, that with the Qatar World Cup coming up now, it's even bigger asterisks, asterisks over that, the human rights abuses there. And, and that is not something we can enjoy. I'm not saying you can't enjoy the football, but you cannot ignore um, what, what is going on there. And that's something we have to continue to grapple with. And I'm not sure, we're all not sure the best way to do that. Can you watch the World Cup and still be in a, in a, in a correct moral standing, blah, blah, blah. But it's something we need to continue to talk, talk about and think about. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I was reminded of that in the middle of the final when I when I realized why the pitch invaders were coming on. I totally agree with that, Um, Totally agree with that. There should now, be... Just to, to, to key on to your point, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about just the next phase it's just it's always this kind of excitement about the next part and the, you know, the next thing in the future and i i've been saying this for a while now like and and they always ask me this when i go on to Lusport. um like what when is all this going to happen well i think we're going to see a, a just a huge amount of transfer activity in the next couple of weeks and it's going to be when all the big teams are really going to be making their big roster moves we get to start really refocusing on all the clubs. <clears throat> so I'm, I am excited about that, but I think you can be excited about something and also sad that something's over. Just like I think we can say with Cristiano Ronaldo, like you can be sad that the Cristiano Ronaldo era is over at Real Madrid and excited about the next era. Those aren't conflicting feelings. I think Twitter, 
<clears throat> to Alm's point, Twitter should have an auto-block option. Like, if, if anyone ever tweets at you, sick to sports, they should just be auto-blocked. Like, that's it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, especially Alm's Al- Twitter, who is just basically... I Half the time, I have no idea what he's tweeting about. But. <laughs> um, it's for the best, Keon. Yeah. Um, we have uh, this is a great great crop of, crop of questions by the way that came in through Patreon this week. I mean the, the questions of patrons are always great. I think they're extra fun this time. There are a few left over from the Ronaldo uh, pod that came in after we finished reco- recording. We can we can I get kind of spend less time on those because we've probably already answered most of them. Um, then there's other questions too, which we'll get into. Um, you guys ready for questions? Let's do it. All right. Uh, as always, patreon.com slash managingmadrid is where you go to pledge. You can pledge um, different amounts. You get different rewards. You can you can get a follow back on Twitter. You can get guaranteed responses to your questions. You can join us on the podcast. You can sponsor the show by putting an advertising on it. You can enslave me to write an article about your choice um, if you pledge a certain amount. Only one person has, uh, has, actually, has actually executed that reward button. It is, it is there, um, I, if I may remind you all. So um, these next set of questions are all from patrons. So first patron question is from Sheikh Atiri. He says, first of all, I'm much less upset about Cristiano's departure than I thought I'd be. If I could live with Raul leaving, I can cope with Ronaldo's departure. I'm immensely respectful of his being the greatest of all time and the symbol of professionalism and grateful for all the joy he brought us especially the 2011-2012 goal in the Camp Nou and the bicycle kick against Juventus. But he never excited me as a Maridista who bleeds white like Ramos, Bale, Vasquez, and Marcelo do. Uh, Bale is an interesting choice, I guess, here. Uh, Nevertheless, I will miss him greatly. I hope that he returns in the future after retirement. I will also add to this that this team didn't become the greatest sport franchise in the world by relying on individual players. And the future is as bright as ever. Speaking of Ronaldo, if he wins Serie A, he will be the first player to have won all of the traditionally three big leagues and the second person ever after Mourinho. God knows that he deserves it. I hated Juve before, passionately, since 02-03, the semi-final, um, and I don't know whom I'll support in Italy from now on. Now that I got that off my chest, money was standing. Name your ideal transfers in and out this summer. Also, any idea what are we doing with Cohen, Trau, and Odegaard with their loans being over? Given Lopetegui's love for young players, is there a chance that we would keep Odegaard? So there's a lot here. Uh, I just wanted to quickly chime in on this uh, that Shay says. Uh, he never excited me as a Maradisa who bleeds white. I think this is interesting. Uh, I, I don't think Shay is unique in feeling this way. I think Ronaldo was one of those figures that he brought literally um, million, uh, at least a million fans. We saw that with the, with the social media switchover. I don't know if you guys saw that, that overnight Real Madrid lost a million social media followers and Juve gained them. And so like, there are wow. people who literally worship him for obvious reasons and has brought a lot of new fans like home to, to the club, which is great. If you and I'm and I'm saying this just because I've actually talked to Madridistas in Madrid, and a lot of people feel that as great as Ronaldo was, they never felt emotionally attached to him. And I always thought that was interesting. And I think Shea is not unique in feeling that way. Um, yeah. So I, just to yeah. I, to agree, like 
this is not an uncommon you know line of uh, things that people especially like the people on the ground in madrid like i've heard this a lot a lot from people in that in spain specifically yeah and i, I don't it, i i i know that it is a common thing but i never understood it it never made any sense to me if you guys could explain it but because when because first of all the idea of bleeding white is a very vague concept and i'm not sure anyone has ever thought to define or we we really know what it means because i think when you get into it then it becomes very hard to exclude ronaldo from that because does it mean that you wanted to come to the club for the passion for the club because ronaldo spent a year and a half fighting to come to this club does it does it mean you know sh- showing passion on the field does it mean hating barcelona does it mean you know, saying things in the press that stand up for for people in your team. Does it mean fighting till your last breath on the field? Does it mean being professional? I think Ronaldo showed all of those qualities. I mean, I think uh, um just just to answer that. I mean, the way I've I've always heard it expressed is it's people who, who whose basic feeling is that Ronaldo made himself more than the club. So if you ever you know for whatever reason people thought and and perhaps correctly that. Raul Casillas, some of these players always had this kind of vision of themselves as servants of the club rather than as like you know, the club as part of their own legacy. Uh, and uh, there's a belief that Ronaldo felt of himself that he was kind of greater than the club or that he um, was you know, valued his own his self more than the club, which, again, I don't I, I personally don't agree with this, um, but I, I'm just trying to kind of elaborate on on why and what people kind of think about this there's this this kind of overriding sense still that cristiano ronaldo's ego is this big you know huge thing and you know that's why he never lets other players take penalties and always has to quaff his hair or whatever but it's i mean we know that that's nonsense um but it's also that you know this is this is a part of his career that i don't think and his his image that he's it's going to be almost impossible for him to shake yeah it's interesting i think that makes i think the way you phrased it makes sense to me and like you said i would contest that especially if you dig into it right like the way ramos in 2015 maneuvered to he like leaked some weird rumors that he might go to barcelona i think these are games that all players play and that if we actually tried to scientifically look at this it does it doesn't make that much sense but again this is more of a feeling um, and I think the way you, you explained it, Gabe, makes sense to me. I mean, it goes all the way back to his time at United, and um, yeah. that English press basically created and characterized him in a certain way, and that sort of never left. Like, I mean, I, I think I think in some ways you can't control who you get emotionally attached to and who you don't. Like, I think for a lot of players who grew up like before Ronaldo, our, our fans, sorry, they would have. The, a Raul-like figure seems more intriguing to them because of what he represented. I agree. I, I, so for what it's worth, I don't agree with that train of thinking at all. I'm just, I'm just saying that this, this feeling exists in Spain. It's real. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'm sure yeah. maybe I'll feel the same way now when the next, because the next generation of players is going to come because our core that existed in 2009 is almost gone if you think about it, which is kind of sad. But you know, maybe I'll feel the same way because. I wasn't there for the, for when Raul was in his prime and, and all of that. Well, I would say that I I don't really have... First of all, I think t- 
to assume who has an ego, who doesn't. It's it's kind of, I wouldn't say judgmental, but it's such an it's such an impossible thing to measure. And sometimes we perceive confidence as arrogance, um, mm-hmm. where, to me, we should all literally already be erecting his statue anywhere we can. Because imagine <laughs> going imagine going through that Pep era without Ronaldo. I don't know how we would any. Of, I I don't know. I think it would be mass suicide. Yeah. He literally was the the reason we were even close in like so many of those games. Like just the the lack of fear he had and everything and just he to me like I don't I don't care if you, one of my favorite athletes of all time was a psychopath Michael Jordan and I so this stuff yeah. really doesn't bother me or rub me the wrong way if certain players act a certain way. But I'm anyways. My point was just that that yeah feeling. no you're right comparatively <laughs> yeah, yeah, speaking yeah, yeah. Michael Jordan's like a Cristiano Ronaldo's like a fit team player like. Energy guy <laughs> off the bench, like yeah. Mike, basketball Michael is a different is a story. Yeah. yeah, basketball is more far more individualistic, and it doesn't bother people nearly as much. Football culture is slightly different. Sure. Um, I guess the second part of Shay's comment, which was the, where the real question lies, um, and I'll just read it again. Uh, your ideal transfers in and out this summer. I, I think we almost can save this for the rest of the podcast because we'll be just kind of question about yeah. this. But also, any idea what are we doing with Cohen Trowell or Odegaard, who are who their loans are over and they're technically still Real Madrid players? Oh well, <laughs> Cohen I'd hope players. I'd hope we I hope we sell Cohen Trowell or something because he's he's not very good anymore. To put it like bluntly, I mean he. I, I think we forget that he used to be amazing. We mentioned this, I think, in podcasts a couple of years ago against Bayern Munich, how he completely locked Robin down. Obviously, he's not that same guy anymore. Injuries have, have devastated the, the latter, the, the ending parts of his career. Um, I was honestly surprised when I learned a couple of weeks ago that he was still on loan. Obviously, that's a time we're going to have to cut. Odegaard's a more interesting question. Um, I, I, I feel like there are a lot of Madrid fans who will... Who will ask for him to come back but i don't know if if that's ideal I, I i think another year on loan might be the best considering how stacked we are in his type of position still but i i don't know how odegaard will feel about that maybe he's kind of sick of, of being out on loan but considering how patient we've been with him i wouldn't be surprised if he's not at the burnabout this season yeah, me too. I wouldn't be surprised. I would also love to see him loaned out to somewhere in Spain, actually. Yeah, that's the next step. It's the next step before I, I would be 100%. But then again, you know, maybe maybe this is the year that, that Lopetegui just kind of, kind of rolls the dice and says, come on in. And, you know, if he wants to try, then he can always try to find a loan partner and, and then in the middle of the season in the winter transfer. So. I think if, if I had to put money on it, I would say he'd be loaned out to Spain this, this season. I yeah, hope that's because we know he's not going back to here in Wien, and I I don't think any of us on the podcast think he's going to be a Real Madrid player next season. Yeah, I no. hope because it'd be much easier to keep an eye on him in in Spain. I only was able to catch a couple of games. Um, he he played with here in Wien. Um, I think it'd be nice to regularly see Odegaard in the same league that he will want to be playing with Real Madrid. And it will give us a really, really good barometer of of just how good he is, much better than anything we've seen in the past. And it might finally put to bed some of these obnoxious, like really tiresome media pieces Mm -hmm. about how he's a failure. And how how it was a mistake for him to move to Real Madrid. Yeah. 
Yeah, don't get me started on those. Contrao, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, has said uh, said this summer or or at the end of the season at some point, he said that this is the best he's ever felt as a footballer. He's in the best shape of his life. Well, that's good. That's yeah. good to hear. He had uh, I I didn't watch him at all. Apparently, he had a pretty decent season at Sporting too. Good. He deserves that after a tough couple of years. Yeah. I feel like July and August is the classic. He's in the best shape of his life season. Like, you know, that's it's the season for those statements. Uh, so we'll see. <laughs> well, he also contradicted it by saying he doesn't want to play in the World Cup because apparently they were counting on him. And he, he um, issued a statement or talked to the manager and said that, I don't think I'll be of value this summer. Oh, don't yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, that was... That was a relief for me personally as someone who supported Portugal. Well, <laughs> he wouldn't have started, would he? I, I have no idea. I don't know why we would have fucking taken him um, in the first place because we were fine without him. Or, or not we, I guess, but Portugal were fine without him. Uh, Christopher McCormick says, I can't talk myself around to Neymar. His last two transfers have been shady as fuck. He showed absolutely no respect for Barca in dumping them like he did and seems to have caused nothing but trouble at PSG. People are convinced that Real Madrid will change him. What evidence have we got to say that the club will change anything about him? No disrespect to Ronaldo, but now that he is gone, we have a chance to build a solid collective. Buying Neymar is replacing one star with another, a star that has demanded more ego management than Ronaldo ever did. He is a great player, but I would love to see... the team go in a different direction than trying to find a direct replacement for Ronaldo. Not a question, so, but an interesting statement. So, I have I have a lot to say about this, and I think I'm it. in the minority with some of my opinions here. So, first of all, to deal with the transfers, his first transfer especially was shady as fuck. There's absolutely no way going around that. I think the second transfer had less to do from Neymar's side, but more to do with the club itself and, and the way... PSG's entire financial situation is set up and and how basically in an, a, a country funded the transfers that's what's shady not necessarily from Neymar's side um as to Neymar not showing any respect for Barcelona I mean I I don't know if I'd really agree with that I mean I there's this idea also, isn't that, that a good thing yeah it's the idea that Neymar there's this idea that Neymar was supposed to he like he owed something to Barcelona. I mean, he had every right to leave and and pick a situation which he thought was better for himself. I don't know what was disrespectful about the way he left. He was really clear about what he wanted. You know, in the preseason games, he played better than anyone else, even though he knew he was gone. So he was professional in that aspect. Um, Barcelona fans were really really salty about it because this was a player they said was better than Cristiano Ronaldo for all the seasons he was here. And then all of a sudden he wanted to leave and suddenly he was worse than Lucas Vasquez. So, I mean, it, 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 I think that whole idea was more it, it, more of Barcelona fans getting salty and slandering Neymar than him disrespecting them in any way. Maybe I left out some detail. Um, and then there's the drama with PSG, which I don't think you can deny there has been some drama there. It's just to what extent and how much has been blown up. I mean, as far as I'm aware, it's it's the penalty situation where Cavani wanted to take penalties. Also, it was free kicks. And I'm not really aware of that much else. I mean, there, there's Neymar's antics, like the diving and stuff. But I, I think this idea that Neymar is just this impossible to control person that 
will just blow up your dressing room seems over exaggerated because especially when he was when he was at Barcelona there were no problems like that whatsoever. Um I would I would very much welcome his signing. I think the transfer side of it might be an issue, but I, I don't see the same issues that existed in the past, you know, coming up here. Like I don't think we'd have to pay a bunch of illegal millions to his father. And I don't think we don't have this the, the Spanish state isn't gonna fund that transfer. Um I mean, if Neymar comes, I don't think anyone's gonna object to him taking penalties. I mean I mean, I don't know if you guys have differing opinions, but I just haven't been all as on board the train that signing Neymar is like some kind of disaster. Gabe? I just, all I have to say is that I'm surprised that we're talking about disrespecting Barcelona as if that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, Neymar always wanted to come here, I think. So I, I don't think... If he disrespected Barcelona, I just don't think it's going to happen in the same way. The only reason he went to Barcelona is because his dad made him, and because Barcelona could pay that shady that shady money to him like directly. Which, by the I way, agree. I think in hindsight, dodging that whole fiasco actually was. I mean, the the fact that Roselle is basically criminal, and that was one of the shady things he did among that whole deal was keep so many of those things a secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think um. I, I don't think there's any question that if you brought him in, and you know, Gabe and I both said this, that you, we'd learn to love him if we don't love him right now. Um, and I think having him on one flank, barrel on the other, whoever in between, whoever behind them would be devastating and almost impossible to defend. I think Neymar can score goals. Um, so you, you'd you know, score more goals than like a Hazard-type player, which you need goals next season. I think I don't think it's just a penalty situation. I think... There was there were a whole bunch of reports that you know he has special privileges like um, he can do his own training routine he can have his he's like the only one at PSG who is allowed to wear or or have a bag that is not sponsored by the club he has his own bag it's just like silly things like that I don't know how much of that stuff would one carry over and two would that how much even, is it true anyone yeah is it true and three well I think it was true it was well documented by journalists within the club but I think the okay. other thing was. Um, does it even does that stuff really do people actually care about that stuff? Uh, when you have Carvajal openly saying things like "We'll have a locker ready for him," I wonder if the players, if the players, I don't think the players give a shit. I don't think the players, not at Real Madrid anyway. I think everybody actually kind of likes him. You know, in the preseason they were they were flirting with each other a little bit. Last season they all mm-hmm. they all seem to get along. They like each other. Marcelo's here. Casemiro's here. Yeah, Marcelo and Casemiro are great friends with Neymar. I think a different discussion Om, would be for the price you're going to dish out for him. Is that interesting enough of a purchase? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I mean, I'd argue yes, but I think that's a more valid argument than what others are making, which more seems to be basically, I don't like Neymar, therefore I don't want him to come, which sounds very, very similar to the arguments a lot of Real Madrid fans made when Ronaldo was coming over because... They're, they're similar in a lot of ways in the way they're perceived in the media and the things reported around them. Um, people thought Ronaldo was going to get a lot of special treatment when he came to Madrid. There were initial reports that he was getting it. And the squad, basically, when he came, is like, well, well this guy's totally different than everything we were told he was going to be. Um, I, I don't know if it'll be the exact, exact same with Neymar, but it, the situations are, are very similar, in my opinion. Um, I think one of our... I, I think you might be a patron, Naz, Naz Habib... Um, mentioned to me he's a huge Ronaldo fan. Nazi he told 
yeah, he he told me that he told me that he didn't like Ronaldo at all before he came to Real Madrid. Oh. He didn't like he didn't like who he was at Manchester United, and then he said when he came, totally changed my opinion. And now he's a huge Ronaldo fan, yeah, he's and he's one, one of the biggest yeah one of the biggest Ronaldo fans I've ever met. So I I think we have to keep that kind of perspective open there. Like you and Gabe said, we we'll learn to love him, but. I, I remain skeptical of, of a lot of the negative arguments, but I do think the cost factor is a more convincing argument than, than the other things that have been mentioned. If uh, the moment he goes back to the camp, no, they hate him. He scores the goal there. Then I'm I'm okay, buying his, I'm buying his poster the next day. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah Rogers says. Does anyone else think that Ronaldo went to Juve because of the tribute he got after his bicycle kick? He does love being loved, or as Terrell Owen says, I love me some me. I think his ovation in Turin has, has something to do with his decision. Am I wrong? We mentioned this before, right? Like, Maybe. how... I think I, I brought it up saying I think this is part of the factor. Like, um, it, I don't know how much we should go into it because we, we went in this on the last pod. But yeah, I, I definitely think it was a factor. I think someone like Ronaldo, who's sometimes been criticized in the Bernabeu, would want to go somewhere where people are just in awe of him and he can be appreciated in a new way again. I don't disagree with that. I wouldn't be that surprised also if, in addition to sort of that feeling, um, that, I mean, that he sort of, he's leaving for a league where he can coast maybe a little bit more and still get his high-end uh, stats. But also, like, the family that owns Juve owns Ferrari, and it wouldn't shock me if they have some other marketing and whatnot deals with him that would have been able to increase his salary a fair amount just on top of what he's already making. So, I, I mean, I think that there's going to be other stuff that eventually... I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if he started seeing Cristiano Ronaldo, like, Ferrari posters in the next year or so. Or if he starts doing, like, ads for them or, or, or whatever. I, on top of all of this other stuff. But, yeah, I mean, like, Juve... Um, I... I, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable enough <laughs> to talk about Juve because uh, they didn't pay me this month. So pay me my money and then I'll compliment your club, Juve. <laughs> Jason Morrill is going to take us back a little bit. He's going to he his question is interesting. He says, "Can you guys compare and contrast the duos of Di Stefano and Bernabeu versus Ronaldo and Perez? Not a battle of which is better or more important to the club, but just similarities and differences." Yeah. So I I have a lot to say about this. Um, I don't know if you guys have something short that you want to get in first. Um, I'll try to be quick. You go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> So, so essentially, the way you would contrast them, I know you said you didn't want it to be a battle between importance. Um, I'm not doing that, but it just isn't more. It just is important to note that Di Stefano and Bernabeu are the two most important figures in the club's history because they essentially built literally and metaphorically what Real Madrid is today. And Bernabeu was more what he built literally, and Di Stefano was was more metaphorically. So Bernabeu was the one who orchestrated the building of the new stadium, I think. I mean, because after the end of the Civil War, Real Madrid was a dead club, basically. It was completely ravaged. Um, most of the old administration had been had, had been killed or they, or they disappeared. Um, Atletico Madrid was actually the, the, the club of the state at the time. They were the more popular team. And 
it, it took a lot of work to hire all the right people. Essentially, Burnabout turned it into more of a business type um, organization so they could start earning money again, so, so they become organized. And then he built a stadium that was considered too big for, for Real Madrid's stature at the time, but he had so much ambition that he knew what the team could become. And to make that happen, he signed players like Di Stefano, like Hento, like Santa Maria, like Puskas. He signed all these players and essentially built the first super team that Real Madrid would ever have. And Di, had, and Di Stefano was the crown jewel of all of that. He led the team on the pitch. He was our best player. You know, he was icon. He was basically the captain um, of the team um, on the pitch. And he gave that romanticism... That, that we still feel today about the club. He he embodied the values on the pitch. And that's what that's what those two did. And so what essentially Perez and Ronaldo have done is enhanced all of that. So Perez, like Bernabeu, went back and made Madrid a better business. He restructured some things. He essentially modernized Real Madrid for, for the 2000s um, and in his first era and in the second. And then Ronaldo came in and... You know, tactically, his role was very, very different from Di Stefano, but essentially it was almost like he was also the captain on the pitch, the leader, you know, with his goals, with his brilliance. You know, he attracted so many fans to the club. He embodied, you know, what Real Madrid was about, about flash, about goals, about, about you know, never giving up, that kind of stuff. And so essentially, you could just see, um, to, to some of you, could see Di Stefano and Bernabeu as the ones that's, that built Real Madrid and Ronaldo and Perez are the ones who added to the foundations, made the structure more solid, and also gave us more floors in that building. Nothing to add to that. That was awesome. It, I, I, um, people forget how um, people forget the early history of the club. Like it's a that period from you know before Bernabeu and Di Stefano. People don't really know about in Real Madrid's history, which is why. So many people have adopted this vision of the team as a this coule vision, which is that you know this is a team of, of fascism and, and whatnot. But when in reality, like this is a team that you know, if you actually realize, read what the history of the team is, it's it's a team that um, that was you know a, a great one of the first teams in Spain, but then also that entire institution that they had spent you know twenty whatever years building was basically torn out from the from every single aspect you know part of their team or that their administrative team was 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 thrown in jail executed or fled right so they really did need to have to be rebuilt and um Bernabeu's decision to rebuild it as a business is it it was the one of the great innovations of the modern of the modern game I'm not sure how how else to how else to put it like it was a stroke of brilliance, just like uh, uh, you know, and, and realizing that a you know the the fascist state is more open to business than you know, and and if they if they said, well, look, we're we're not going to focus on politics, we're going to focus on on business, and you you could actually credibly tell that to you know a, a, a fa- like this this terrible government that had thrown all of your predecessors in jail and that's i mean this this club was uh, uh you know the modern history of this club was written in that that decision right and, and it's a it's a stroke of brilliance to to see that and to also be able to understand the the, the very specific relationship of of um 
of, of, of fascism to the uh, to the to the business community, right? Like it's you know one of the things that distinguishes is some forms of you know, political organization and fascism and other from other totalitarianism is that fascism itself is very receptive to business um, and and doesn't tend to uh, you know it doesn't tend to uh, uh, kind of end or control business as much as um, as maybe uh, other other forms of totalitarianism. So it's a it's a fascinating early history of the club, and I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's the the parallel between Bernabeu and Di Stefano and Ronaldo and Perez is actually quite interesting because it is almost like you you fast forwarded uh, over f- well, about 50 years uh, and 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 more actually, and just kind of created the the modern day version you had because like, Florentino and, and Bernabeu both ambitious I, I mean I, people may not realize that Real Madrid may actually not have existed today if it wasn't for Bernabeu just kind oh, of yeah, being absolutely. like you know maybe maybe let's let's put together this club that's literally dead uh, and it, yeah, it, 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 it someone, was destroyed like yeah. it needs to be emphasized this club was like it, it, it was non-existent after the civil war like people don't realize that like they think Real Madrid was like funded by the state and, and you know, we're giving advantage over everyone else. Like it was destroyed by the state. Yeah. And this guy came in and he re- rebuilt it from nothing. Yeah. I mean, he was he was discussing with like different what businessmen, investors or whatever, try to like put it together because the state wasn't funding anything. Um, and then like to Om's point is what he built, like the, the pure ambition, the, the size of the stadium, which people thought it was crazy. And then the first super team or whatever, also the first collection of just like players in, around the world. Um, and then Di Stefano obviously is comparable to Ronaldo for obvious reasons. They were both the GOAT players, the unicorns who stood above everybody else and, and gave this club so much in terms of like putting them on the map and, and winning trophies and scoring goals and, and, and dictating the tempo of the team and all that. Uh, I guess... Where it gets interesting is how do you compare Di Stefano and Bernabeu and Ronaldo and Perez when it comes to the end of their relationship? Because with Florentino and Ronaldo, it didn't end on the best terms. Um, although publicly, we all you know it's amicable and, and, and stuff like that. Um, we know their relationship just kind of deteriorated for the reasons we've already talked about last week. Uh, but with Di Stefano, when he in his last two years when he went to Espanol. And the difference is also, like, although he was past it like Ronaldo was, he wasn't way past he, Like, he was way more past it because he was, like, in his 40s, I think. And also the odd thing about that era is that players somehow started late. Like, we think about the, the back then, people, like, just played till they were, like, 15 and then that was it. They didn't have the science to, like, have the longevity. But if Puskas arrived at, like, 30, 31 when he was fat and he went and he had his, like, peak at 32 or something... Uh, I can't remember his exact age, but he was old. And 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 Di Stefano, I think he was in his forties when he went to Espanol. Like, my math yeah. is adding up. The funny thing is, just as an aside, we didn't actually see Di Stefano in his prime. Um, I think it was River Plate was the team he played for, um, in in South America. That was his prime, and we never got to see that. I don't think there's any tape of it. So just think how crazy good this guy was that he came to Real Madrid. He wasn't in his prime, and he was still by far the best player in the world. Uh, and for, for many years. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the reason he left for Espanol was because uh, 
the last final, the European Cup final against Inter, they lost. Him and the coach, Miguel Munoz, apparently really butted heads. And uh, he said that, you know, he was treated really badly. And at that time, he was between Espanol and two Italian clubs. I want to say Juventus and Inter, but I, I could be wrong. But he chose Espanol because he was friends with the coach who was Kubala at that time and he left. So it, his relationship didn't necessarily deteriorate with Bernabeu. It was mostly the coach. I think that was just the only, I guess, like differences because if you want to talk about their comparisons and similarities, you should talk about also how it ended. And mm-hmm. Florentino and Ronaldo didn't seem like they ended on the same, same amicable ways that they started with. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Question from Sajid Reyes. He says, can Modric still win the Ballon d'Or after today? I think he deserves it. Also, yes. what? Yeah. Okay, well, one sec, we'll come back to it. Uh, Sajid <laughs> says, also, why are we making so many denials of transfers? Is it to protect ourselves from being reported? So we talked about this last podcast, did we not? Um, so maybe we can just refer people back to that. Oh, I guess not since we had the new one. Okay, let's talk about Modric first. Ballon d'Or, what, what, does he, can he win it after losing the World Cup? Was he going to even win it after winning the World Cup? Serious questions. I so, I, I mean, I don't think you could reasonably say he's the favorite knowing the way this award goes. I mean, I think he has a better chance than he's ever had in his career because he won the Golden Ball. Um, the, the funny thing to me is is that this isn't Modric's prime or peak. He's still arguably the best central midfielder in the world, but... 2013 14, 2014 15, 2015 16 was when Modric was at, his, was at his absolute best. And it's just weird to me that it's taken this long for us to appreciate him in this way to the point where we say he should be in contention for Ballon d'Or. Personally, I think he had a stronger argument in past seasons, but I, I still think he, he, he has a fairly strong argument this season. I, I still think Ronaldo and Messi are, are above everyone else, but, you know, I. I, I, I think I think he has a good argument and I would not at all be angry to see him lift that, you know, for the first time in, in ten years that, you know, a human has won the Ballon d'Or. I I'll just say that um I I I think that he, he could win it this year. I mainly think that because I, I would love to give it to him. Um and winning the, the ball the golden ball at the World Cup, best player at the World Cup is big also, it's big, guys, because the Ballon d'Or ultimately is not just about how good you yourself play, how well you played, but it's also about it's a comparative award right now, right? And so, comparatively, Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi both have put in their traditional fantastic seasons, but they also both really kind of choked out of this World Cup. And we know for a fact that the World Cup is a big chunk of the voting at the Ballon d'Or every year. So, you know, this the fact that not only did they both choke out of this World Cup, the, the, the only other two contenders really for it, I think, this season, um, maybe Salah charitably, they, but they both also had a really disappointing World Cup. So I, I, I don't think he's going to, but I think that he has a real, really credible case now, um, at least because of... Uh, navigating this Croatia team to the final when no one expected it and winning the best player at the tournament award and, and winning the Champions League with Real Madrid the same like you've got the same team based awards as Ronaldo so I don't know I think that 
just because of the, the comparative failure of Messi and Ronaldo at the World Cup, he's got a shot, at least. Well, I think I think it is also worth mentioning. I agree with that, but I think it's worth mentioning in 2014, Messi won Golden Ball and Ronaldo ended up winning the Ballon d'Or anyway. And part of that was that his explosion in the beginning of the 2014-15 season was one of the great first half of the seasons that we've ever seen from an individual player. It was like something like 25 goals in like 14 games or something, like seven assists. He was creating over two chances per game. Like it was ridiculous. Um, I, It's definitely not over. I think it's too early to say because I still think those first couple months before the Ballon d'Or voting ends is crucial because if one of Ronaldo or Messi explodes, then it's highly possible that we that we just forget about what Modric did in the World Cup. Because we have to remember, before the World Cup started, Salah seemed like an, a lock for at least third place, and now we've already kind of thrown him out of the discussion. These are... The, the, the voting is very... Um, a recency bias plays a huge, huge factor. And... You know, if if someone explodes, because because Messi also won La Liga, he won the Copa del Rey. So because there's not a standout, I think an but explosion. But historically, the, the the it does the World Cup was a huge part of it. Like I mean, right? I, I just I just don't think it decides it. Navarro in 2007, who had like a fine year for that Juve side, but then won like the Golden Ball at the World Cup, playing you know guiding that incredibly strong Italian defense to the World Cup. So. Well, there also I, I agree with that, but there also wasn't like a Ronaldo or Messi there. That's true. <laughs> I think uh, this is why exactly why I think they should reset the the timeline of when the Ballon d'Or starts. Yeah, it should, it should be, be a season. It should be seasonal yeah, instead of yearly. Yeah. I think it would make it it's much more clear. Shit. Yeah, yeah. yearly shit makes it. It doesn't make any sense, first of all, and it just the voting isn't very. I don't know. It's not. It's not great. But yeah. it is what it is, and I personally think fans don't really care about it that much anymore. Um, we we all know that it doesn't mean hands down confirmed you were the best player. We all know there's more nuance. Right. Well, I think to your point about Modric's peak being a few years ago, I think th- that discussion. I think it applies to like a general sense to every player in almost in every sport. Um, while I think the peaks of certain players are 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 when they're younger generally, to me what they do when they're older is actually just as impressive because now that we have, let's say from 2013 till now, when you look at Modric, I think that the pure consistency, like throughout the years, is to me is incredible. Like, and I think that's why to me it's like you look at him this season, and although he's not 2014 Modric, he's I don't know if he's actually any worse also, but just he has that experience. He has that calmness to his game. He has that um, the, the ability not to get rattled in any situations. I felt this way about LeBron, by the way. That Yeah, I, I was just about to say yeah, that. Because you and I talked about this on Slack. That you, you for, for obvious reasons, we both know LeBron's prime was not this year. But mm-hmm. somehow this may have been like one of his most impressive years ever because of the carry mm-hmm. job he had to do. So I often think that even though we agree with that, it, it's, strongly agree with that. Sometimes we sometimes we see players not in their peak, but somehow the the seasons they play in when they're older at a high level is more impressive. And then Modric has the benefit that Ronaldo or Messi just weren't Ronaldo and Messi anymore. Um, 
I mean, that's harsh. They're still Ronaldo and Messi, but they, they weren't <laughs> dominating as they used to, right? So he has that. But I, I agree with you. I, I, like, Salah, unfortunately for him, recency bias and unfairly to him, Egypt just didn't have the team in the World Cup to, for him to do anything. But he may also, like, October, November, December, just go on a tear and then win the, win the Ballon d'Or there. But I also do think there's a case to be made for Modric that mm-hmm. even though it wasn't his peak, it may have been his most impressive season. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think also it becomes easier for us to appreciate a player's body of work rather than Modric 2014 when in many people's minds he hadn't accomplished that much because when you are presented with such overwhelming evidence for Champions Leagues, a league title, a World Cup final, a golden ball, like if you had doubts before, it eventually evaporates. Like I think... It only Cristiano Ronaldo, we forget, had so much doubt, even in his prime, from for so many people who weren't Madrid fans and even people who were Madrid fans, that they're like, this guy just isn't even in the GOAT conversation. And in like it took to like 2016-17 when he was well past his prime in, in terms of his all-around capability that we're like, this guy's a lock for the GOAT conversation. I mean, it's absolutely no question. And it's just, I think it has more to do with being able to see a full a, the, the full body of a player's work and see that overwhelming evidence rather than being able because it's more difficult I think to see a player playing as in his prime but not having as many accolades to back it up and it, it puts questions in our minds we're like well is this a one-off you know he hasn't won all of this um I I don't think that's necessarily the best way to look at it but it, it I understand it psychologically and I guess at the end of the day, I'm just glad we're finally giving Modric the appreciation that he deserves. To back up your point, um, uh, I think longevity plays a massive factor regardless. Because in peak Modric 2014, I wouldn't have put him in my Real Madrid starting 11 all time. Last mm-hmm. By the end of last season, I was ready to do that. And by now, for the end of this World Cup, I have no doubts that he is he is on the level of Pirlo Chavi all time like without right, he, I, without hesitation I get I understand that but Ballon d'Or is is less life achievement award and more in this particular moment you are the best and I, I just sure. thought it was curious yeah, yeah. that this was the time we decided Modric was better but um I, I totally understand what you're saying longevity should not be looked down upon um I I agree with you 2014 he wasn't on my all-time team but he, ha- he now has a legitimate discussion due to what he's accomplished over the past four to five seasons. Um, Thomas Berg says, the bringing back Hamas rumors are constantly reaching us. How trustworthy are they? If he comes back, how can we utilize him? Can he be a nine flanked with two offensive wingers to both create space, link up, pass, and score uh, like a Bale, Asensio, Lucas, uh, Vasquez, or Hazard? Or where should we see him? Of course, depends on the formation chosen by Hulen. So, um, James Rodriguez, we we've talked about him a little bit in the past couple of pods. We I think we all think that it's it's a real possibility he comes back. I think Lopetegui would like him. Style of play fits in. I, Lopetegui reportedly also wants to bring him back. James, we know his heart is here. It's all a matter of Bayern really want to keep the relationships good and be like okay just take them back uh but i guess the the second part of the question which is maybe more important is if he comes it's true zidane is gone but it's the the position hasn't necessarily gotten that much thinner with ronaldo leaving assuming that he gets a replacement so 
Where do you guys think that you would even fit him? I I personally play him on the right wing. Um, given Bale's injury issues and given that Lucas isn't on the same level, I think he'd get plenty of minutes there. I agree with that. I I think one of his best seasons from Monaco was actually on the right wing. But I would say, and 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 I think what he's proven also under Heinkes, what was interesting was that he played such a deeper role, like especially like against us in those two games. He played two amazing games against us, and and they were both from a deeper role where he was dictating things. And so he's proven more versatile than I think he started off his career. Um, obviously, you don't you, you're probably not going to you know tinker much with the midfield with Modric, Kroos, Kovacic, but Lopetegui does like to pack the midfield, possibly play without a striker. Would you guys? Because I would be okay with this, but but I'm curious to know what you guys think. Would you instead of getting love, instead of getting Hazard? Instead of getting Hazard, Gabe, would you just take Thomas back? Yeah, I would. I, I, I probably would, too. I, I would note that I, I would ideally like... Because I know that... I think that Hazard is sort of plan C um, in the offseason. And I would probably flip him and Hamas. Have Hamas be plan C. Um, again, plan A has to be Mbappe. Plan B would, for me, be Neymar. And then plan C would be Thomas. And I I think you could also just go get both of them. I don't... I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be... I, don't, I wouldn't be thrilled by it, but I would also be interested, intrigued in... Uh, in the decision to try to get both of them back. And try to just... Because we know Hamas is, and, and Azard can both be, are both kind of goal creators. But I think Hamas has a little bit more of that goal scoring and, and you know, ability than, than Azard does. Now, we just saw Azard score a very pretty goal against England in that third place game. But still, I, I, I would probably, you know, I'd probably bring Hamas back. Though I think it, given the, it's Real Madrid, I think it's more likely that we may get Hamas back and Hazard. Um, and I'd, I, I'd be interested in, in, in that. I, I, I would take Hamas over Hazard simply because of the cost factor. Um, like Hazard, it, it would be pretty damn expensive, I think. Um, and also, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm that confident when I think about it, about whether Hamas is coming back. I mean, I definitely hope he does. But what makes me nervous here is the fact that Bayern holds all, all the cards. We sent him out on a two two year loan deal, and then after that, Bayern had the option to pay what was it like sixty million or something to keep him. I think it was or even then, less. It was like something absurd, yeah, like forty million or something. Yeah, and then keep him like I guess about. I think you make a valid point about the relationship between Real and Bayern, but I don't think Hamas is unhappy at Bayern either. I mean, he's gotten to play. I think Real, like you mentioned, versus us for like the first half or something he was playing in like a weird double pivot like he was playing in a deeper role but most of the time he's gone to play as a number 10 which is is a, is a position he really enjoys and it's arguably his best position it, i i don't think i think hamas would want to come back but i don't think he would be opposed to Bayern keeping him and i think that's what makes me nervous because hamas is is brilliant he's one of the best players there with with robin aging you know with a lot of their attack aging with lewandowski being what 31 years old I, I do not think Bayern would be too keen to let someone like James Rodriguez go, especially now that he's in his prime. And that makes me less confident that well, we're going to get him. But I, I, I mean, Hamas, I, 
if I'm Hamas, I'm just I would go to both coaches because you're looking at a situation where you have two unknowns. You have Tuchel coming in for Bayern, and you have yeah. Lopetegui coming in at Madrid, and just basically talk to each of them and see which of them makes a better case for you and for your involvement. Right, in but Bayern system. Bayern holds the cards at the end of the game, right? Like, let's say yeah, Hamas- but he can he can always pitch a fit. You know what I'm saying? Like this is the same as essentially any transfer. He just pitches an absolute fit, and then they would probably let him go. So um, I do, anyways. I think. It's Nico Kovac, by the way, the coach, of, the new coach of Bayern. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I think we're under. I think Om is underestimating how much Hamas loves us. I, I possibly, but I think it's just. A, I, I, I don't think Hamas would disrespect Bayern. I mean, that's just my opinion. I don't think he'll disrespect them, but I think Real Madrid will go knocking and. I, I think Bayern's going to say no. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but I just think they're going to say no because when I look at the, their squad. And how old some of the Ribery, Robin, like it, it, it wouldn't make sense from their perspective to let him go. But I, I, I hope it happens. This is a club that gave us Tony Kroos for free, basically. And even well, like, that they, was, they basically well, that paid because, us to, to buy him. Well, that was because Kroos refused to sign a contract. Um, and because he wanted more, like a lot, a lot more money. And Bayern wasn't willing to do it. They, they could, Bayern control the Hamas situation here. Kroos controlled the situation then. I think I have faith in Hamas. To, to I hope I'm work. wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm being way too pessimistic. Here. I, I I think no. I think you're being realistic. I think, but I I actually think that there's a real possibility that Hamas is a Real Madrid player next season. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, I you know we if if Hazard can't stop talking about us and flirting with us, I I don't even know how, <laughs> how he's even allowed to say half the stuff he says about us. <laughs> uh, but. Hamas is on the same level of just wanting to play here as Hazard is. Plus, if we can amicably make it work with Bayern, just kind of twist their arm a little bit or something, even just write them a check, be like, here, we'll give you this much money, just take them back. Like, just just keep the relationships good. Still still cheaper than Hazard. Yeah. Um, the next question is from Thomas Berg. Which, this kind of ties in, actually. I, I Maybe I should have read this question together, but we'll, we'll read it now. Um, oh, this is just a continuation of his another Thomas Burke question. <laughs> <laughs> he says, What would Hazard add to a team with Asensio and Bale and Isco? Does he bring so much that we are lacking? Or should we turn elsewhere with that kind of money? So this basically ties in. We talked about Hazard last week, too. Um, yeah. I think we all feel that Hazard is a great player. We're not sure if he's exactly what we need because we have so many players in this position. We're not sure we need another winger. This maybe contradicts to why we want Hamas back, but Hamas just seems like a bit a, a more of a seamless fit with what Lopetegui, I think, wants and, to do. And also, Hamas would play on the right wing where, where, where more minutes would be available due to Lucas Vazquez being not as good and Bale's injury issues. Hazard... If he's coming, you want to play him in his best position, and that is out on the left wing, which is where he would be worth the 150 million or whatever we're going to buy him for. And that is where we have Asensio and potentially Isco, who, who's enjoyed that position under Lopetegui a lot. Um, and Asensio, Isco, both very reliably fit players. You know, Isco is entering his prime, probably going to be key to Lopetegui's system. Really excited to, to see what he's going to do there. And also, Asensio has a much higher ceiling than Lucas Vasquez. Like I, I'm okay with Lucas Vasquez getting less minutes because he's also okay with it. He knows what his role in the team is. 
Asensio is going to be a future star. I'm pretty sure that was kind of what he was promised, what he expects. And I do not want to see his minutes stunted. For me, with Ronaldo gone, this is the time we give Asensio a ton of minutes and, and make a slight gamble because this is the transitionary period that we've all been talking about. And now that it's finally come, I feel like a lot of fans are nervous and they don't want to go through the growing pains of that. But it's something we have to do. If you want to get all these super awesome, young, exciting, young talents like Odegaard, Vinicius, Rodrigo, Asensio, you have to go through this period where they get a ton of minutes and, and they grow into the role and it's slightly nervous. But the, the long-term effects are, are, are really damn good. I think there's a good chance that Lopetegui is going through and like projecting his starting lineup and he's he's writing Casemiro, Kroos, Modric because I think we all know he likes Casemiro uh, and then he's putting Isco on the left mm-hmm. and then he's going to be like oh shit what am I going to do with Florentino's new signing mm-hmm. I, I think I think he already like I think Isco is a <laughs> lock like you know and I think there's other players this is why I'm, I'm not sure if anything other than like someone who can just score goals is, yeah. is a priority signing. We have everything else covered. Like that's it. It's I don't, and, I don't and know. A goal, I don't know and where. a goalkeeper, in my opinion, um, but that's less of a pressing issue than a striker. Even. I just want to also add that in Belgium, the press is saying that the Courtois is going to sign soon. So I. I'm not I super know, high on I know that. You guys are not as high on him, but I. He had a good World Cup. He would be a good. First of all, he had, whatever he 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 would be could be a good bridge keeper for the next like a five year keeper until you know some of the young you know this Lunin that who we just signed or, or maybe some other keeper kind of materializes that Madrid can kind of turn the reins over to. I mean, he's twenty eight. You can you can see him you know continuing to play at a high level for five plus years. So that I think it's a. It's a good needle to thread because of the the price point for Courtois is so low because he's in his last deal and he's so desperate to come home to Madrid. Like it's to me, it's a no brainer to just go and lock this down instead of getting, you know, trying to invest in say Alisson or or, or someone else who's maybe slightly better or whatever, but whose price point is so. And remember, when we talked about like. The, the marginal different in value that you get at different levels of keepers it's not that much yeah that's true but also I think with someone like Ali Son or who's in the Ederson type role with how good he is with his feet um, I mean I'd prefer that type of keeper going forward especially in a Lopetegui system where he I assume he's going to play Juego de Posicion and he's going to want his keeper to be extremely good with his feet I mean that's not something Courtois is great with I mean I, I, I won't be really mad if he comes. I do think he's a pretty good keeper. It's just that I think I think Atletico Madrid's defensive stability enhanced his reputation past his ability. And if you look at his underlying numbers, like the amount... You know, we talked about De Gea's number with, with the expected goals for the opposition team and how much he stopped um, or how much... Um, he his how good his ratio was like the expected he 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 cut that by like 26 goals or something Courtois has been consistently average in those in those metrics um I I don't know if he's significant enough an upgrade on on Navas to to even go out and get him but I I I don't think I could reasonably argue that it would be bad it just wouldn't be great we have two more questions I just want to say that my understanding is those those numbers said that showed that he was the second best keeper in the in the Premier League um, after Dejea. I, 
I'd have to go look at that again. Um, because I, I mean, I was in a discussion with someone who told me that, so maybe they were wrong, and I'd have to go look at that again. I mean, if that's the case, then I'd be a lot higher on him. I would double check just to make sure because I'm pretty sure it, like De Gea was something like saved at 26 goals, which is which was out of this world. But Courtois was like comfortably second at saving like 13, you know. Um, and and it was if I remember the the like it was like point one four uh, or De Gea was at like point one seven and Courtois was like. Point one three or, or whatever. So I don't know. Okay, I, I'll, I'll I, I just sure. got I just got some numbers now. I don't know. Okay, so this is from March fourteenth, so it's not that new, but essentially, so it was De Gea XG goals total that were expected was thirty five point five six at the time I mentioned, and he prevented thirteen point five six goals for Courtois at the time it was twenty four point eight nine, and he prevented two point one. So it was, it was, it was, it was around. It was almost the same as Morris Carius, um, you know, a little worse than Petr Cech, um, better than Ederson, and about the same with Lloris. So Lloris and, and those kind of keepers are good, but we're not talking anywhere near the hail levels based on the slightly old numbers that I just showed you. Word. I, with Courtois, he just he, he didn't have. We all we all know he just didn't have a great year, but then he did, he had a he had a pretty good World Cup. De Gea had a godlike year, and then had a a, a dud in the World Cup. And if there's anything this this the, what is this entire like World Cup has taught me about keepers and whatever is that for everybody who who just ignored Kaler's great season and then popped up once a month to point out one of his mistakes. There was there hasn't been a single great goalkeeper who has been immune to mistakes. I think the only one who has like been just fantastic all around, like consistently to me, is All Black. Um, but I I don't like I really think Kaylor is underrated in that aspect. Is that he just he's been really good and and low key just been good. I understand like you know maybe maybe he 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 his expected goals is not as impressive as you know denying the way the amount that De Gea does, but. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is that I, I don't know how much we can upgrade him unless we really go for the top three. That's why I just don't think it's as urgent as a position to upgrade. Oh, I agree with that. I mean, and in fact, even if you had a top three, I, I still don't think it's that. I mean, like Owen and I were saying like way back when we did this whole discussion, this is the marginal value of even having, let's say, De Gea at the absolute top. It's not that, like, the difference that he, in terms of, like, let's just imagine that a stat like war existed for soccer. Like, the, 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 the addition of the keeper, like, the absolute best versus, say, the 10th best keeper, where I think is, I think we can comfortably say Taylor's around then. I don't know how big a difference that would have been in terms of war for Real Madrid, just to yeah, use a I baseball think- analogy. I, I think De Gea would probably be one of the few that would be really significant given the metrics that we saw. I think something interesting is like I, I, I completely agree with Gabe's point, but the funny thing is we brought that up when someone asked us what the difference is going to be between Neuer and the backup keeper. And, and I think we reasonably said it wasn't going to be that big. And funnily enough, the backup keeper made a really horrible mistake. Oh, this was against Bayern, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. That ended up essentially losing them the game. So, 
in that moment, it turned out it was a pretty big difference. But um, that, but that, that you know, that, in, in, in hindsight, now looking at the World Cup, the, what, what Neuer did in the World Cup, it, it could have honestly, it could have just he could have been the one. Right, right. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm not saying that disproves our point. It's mm-hmm. just like it's just. It was funny pretty how, funny. It's just funny how yeah. football works sometimes. Like logic, logic doesn't always play out the way, the the, the way sure. things play out. Um, and any other thoughts on this discussion before I move on? Nope. No. Okay. Nicholas Zapatero says, "Last week you guys mentioned a couple scenarios in which Mbappe could come to Madrid this summer." Another one that occurs to me is that after his performance today, maybe Flo would be justified in spending three or four hundred million on him. Everyone thought that ninety was crazy for Ronaldo, but imagine getting him at nineteen. Would the board allow Flo to spend that much on a player, and would it be enough to get Mbappe to Madrid? Wow, um, I can imagine the scenario where that happens. Yes, I think it would involve also selling one of the um, assets in order to make the financials work. But, yeah, I mean, if Madrid said, okay, cool, like, we want, this kid is this good, we want him and we want him now, I, the market is what, what people will pay and what people will accept, so, you know, if if PSG would, it's not like PSG is running, uh, sorry, it's not like Cutter is running PSG to make a profit. Um, so, you know, I mean, if they could, for example, someone could say, hey, we'll give you $500 million for one of your players, and they could just say, well, $500 million is a, an absolute drop in the bucket to us. Um, but, you know, I don't know if it could, so that, that's what all, I'm not sure they could get him. But, again, the market is what it is. And so, you know, we're seeing $200 million. It's probably not that long before we see $300 million. Um, so, I... I also think that, I mean, I, again, I don't think there is any uh, market independent, like some sort of intrinsic value for the, the services. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. So, yeah, why not? I mean, I, I could see that happening. I think they might need to sell, like, let's say they, they, one thing they could do is offer, if they really wanted them, they could say, hey, PSG, we'll give you Asensio and $100 million. And I think that might be enough to do that deal. I I, I honestly don't see the Mbappe deal happening at all this season, and I'm not sure why so many Real Madrid fans think that it's going to happen. One, I, I think what Gabe's saying is kind of reasonable, but I think you'd really have to have a lot of belief in in, in that kind of deal happening to, to for this type of thing to occur. I, 300, 400 million is, is crazy, and we need to, to work really hard to make that financially viable, even given that we haven't spent a lot over the, over the last couple of seasons. I mean, that would wipe out basically our transfer budget in one one shot. And it would probably be more than we have at the moment. And I don't know. I, I'm not sure Perez would, 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 would buy it that much. I think around $200 million, okay. And also, I'm not sure Mbappe has any motivation to necessarily come here. I mean, I haven't heard anything. I could be wrong, but I haven't heard anything from his camp that it like like anything like what Hazard is saying um Mbappe had a chance to come here a year ago and he chose PSG it was a very conscious decision he decided that that was the better situation for himself I think the motivating factor to come here was Ronaldo I mean he wasn't a Madrid fanboy he was a Ronaldo fanboy and now Ronaldo's gone um I I mean I we can do as much as we want but PSG doesn't have a motivation to sell 
And I don't think Mbappe is uncomfortable with the situation he is in at PSG at the moment. I think he's very happy, in fact. I just, I, I wish I had the confidence that Madrid fans had, no, but I just I do not, I just do yeah, not totally see him coming. You. Uh, I just, just don't, don't see him coming. I'm just, yeah. the question last week was, can you come up with scenarios? And that I, I provided a couple of scenarios where it could happen. And now if it's like, the problem is that like, these just gone are sort of the days where Madrid could just break the market and the team would be, the other team would have to be, would be guaranteed required to sell because mm-hmm. some of these teams are run by sovereign wealth funds. Like the Qatari government, the Qatari sovereign wealth fund doesn't need Real Madrid's money. So mm-hmm. they, I mean, like the only reasonable thing that I saw that was even cons- like possible that could have made this happen this year is if and it's it's neither Real Madrid nor PSG. It's literally if UEFA decides to sanction PSG. That was what I and that's what I said last yeah, week. And that's like that the, the only way that this yeah. happens this summer. Yeah, that is really the only way I see it happening. I I think we're we're too late and too early for Mbappe right now. We're too late because yeah. we didn't get him last season for a reason we've already talked about. We're too early because if you get him now, he's too expensive. So I I honestly think. Uh, which is counterintuitive, but his value is going to go down. Not his value, but his, his what, what we're going to have no, to pay I agree for. With that. His yeah, contract, yeah, that makes sense. contract ends in 2022. So if you aim for 2021, the year before his contract expires, and he's in a situation where PSU really don't think he's going to resign, they're going to sell him. And yeah. Also, I think at that point, Mbappe might probably would have achieved a lot at PSU. And he thinks, okay, yeah, now is time for a new challenge. And the only where I wait, place I can go, which is which is like has a higher status than PSG or has a better chance of winning or whatever, is like a Real Madrid or Barcelona. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just don't think it's happening for for all the reasons we said. Um, I don't think it's happening now for all the reasons that we mentioned. Last question on the pod uh, from Jahan Watson. He he's he, he has a he he read my Rodrigo article and he 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 wants to ask a question. By the way, if you guys haven't read it, uh, I'm 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 plugging this only because I feel like maybe it got lost in the whole. It was the same. It was kind of like a few days after Ronaldo thing, and then also the same day as the we denied Neymar for the tenth time. So just in case you missed it, it's on Managing Madrid. Um, Jahan says question for the pod: Who are you guys most? excited for in terms of their potential Rodrigo or Vinicius Jr. Go ahead and answer that, Keon. <laughs> I mean, uh, to, to be clear, I think we've all seen minimal of the Brazilian league, but we, because we've signed both, we've, we've all done research, we've, we watch as much as we could, we've, we've you know, we've, we've done what we can to study them. I, to me, and especially after writing the Rodrigo article, uh, I also was able to kind of just speak to his agent a little bit about about him and like where his head's at. I'm I'm really impressed with the kid, and I think um, I got even more excited about him after I wrote the article and just kind of dug into his life. He has a really great head on his shoulders, amazing work ethic, um, constantly training, has like. The kind of the kind of kid who has like he admits his weaknesses and goes to the training pitch and works on them, and um, I think I think he'll struggle a little bit with certain things. Like right now in Brazil, he's very much get it and get to goal, 
and just dribble. And I think his passing needs work. Some of his, uh, you know, in Spain, the pace will be slower. It won't be so much where you're, you'll just have a ton of space on the flanks. But I think if you're asking who's the most polished of the two, it's probably Rodrigo. Maybe you could argue Vinicius has, has the more upside because I don't think we've seen... He's still, I think of the two, he's probably a bit more raw. But I think to me, this question is almost like impossible to answer right now. I think also, and I wrote about this in my article, I don't, I don't think Real Madrid wanted to miss out on a, on a Neymar again. And they're, they're getting the talents they can and hoping one of them sticks. And which one sticks, maybe they both stick, but which one of them is better, I think it's just a guessing game, to be honest. Yeah, I I think I think you said everything perfectly. I just want to like add to what you said, and I think it would be slightly dishonest if we tried to pretend that we could definitively answer who had more potential, given the the low sample size that we personally have been able to watch, given where they play, you know the you know, the other commitments we have to to cover, and and also just how young they are. It's so so difficult to tell, like. What was it? People thought Ricardo Quaresma had a ric- higher upside than than Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, we we can go through so many players. It's virtually impossible to tell because there's so many things that needs to happen. It's much easier when a player is 21, 22, to make that determination. Even then, we've been wrong so many times with Jesse Rodriguez because of injury, etc. You know, Mayoral's loan, disastrous loan spell with Wolfsburg has thrown everything off. And Mariano's gone on to have the better career so far. It's just so complex. I mean, even with Mayoral and Mariano, where it seemed pretty clear cut, like I still think Mayoral might have the better upside. There are so many things that can happen that ensure it doesn't play out the way that you think it will. And so I think the way you evaluate youth talent is less than making very determined, like, determining very strongly he's going to be better you know he's going to be Ballon d'Or winner and more here's this range of options that could happen and here are like roughly their qualities that exist now and here are the things they need to work on I think that's as much as you can do if you're trying to be an honest football journalist um Gabe any 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 thoughts on this before I wrap it up actually I was sorry just last last thing Mm -hmm. um I I will add that, yes, you guys are totally right. But what we can do is we can judge, we can kind of listen to the people, know the people we should listen to, take them seriously, know who to take seriously. And we can also judge some of the, uh, so for example, we know, uh, we can judge some of the physical characteristics. And this seems, I know this seems weird, but this is something I used to write about for an article on baseball, uh, like at a baseball uh, uh, news site that was on ESPN which is a lot about prospects and how do you judge prospects. And even then, it's a total guessing game. But what you can do is you try to figure out what their kind of, at least for me, what I really like to do is notice what their measurables are and then what their physical tools are. And I see with Vinicius a lot of similarities to a young Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm not saying, and this everyone's going to take, could take that out of context. Listen to what I'm saying. He's a very pacey winger who has a lot of quite a nose for goal to the extent that he was the leading goal scorer for Brazil in the, uh, I think it was U19 Copa America, or U20, one of those. He is a very exciting physical talent. He's a very good dribbler, and he's got a nose for goal. I really like him for all those reasons. There are a billion ways that can end up not panning out. Rodrigo, 
uh, has a lot of really good physical characteristics, but what he, I think, has that's a little different is some of the unmeasurables that lead to having a very good long-term career, like you said, Kian, the work ethic. The players that have that work ethic end up, so many of them end up having very good careers. Even if it doesn't pan out at Madrid, I believe that, that Rodrigo will have a really good career. But I do think it's possible that Vinicius has more upside right now. Um, anything to plug, gentlemen, before we wrap it up? Mm, I got nothing right now. Nothing? <laughs> um, I got oh. my article that I'm finishing on, on Juve and, and FFP. That'll be out on Managing Madrid, actually. So. Amazing. Om? Um, I don't think so, but yes, in you around do. Of course, two- you do. You you wrote, you you wrote your yearly article, which wrote about Ronaldo. But you also wrote one for Espionation, which I thought was an important subject to bring up. Oh well, that, that that's kind of old, but I guess I could plug that. So one was the Ronaldo article, which I really enjoyed. I I. I it made me emotional at the end. I had people tell me it made them emotional, especially people who were there in the early Mourinho years. Um, if you if you can, it's still there. I think on the front page for managing Madrid, you might have to scroll down a little bit if you want to check that out. You can. That for the SB Nation main site, I don't know if it will still be on the front page because they 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 churn out a lot more content than us. But I can send it to you on Twitter. You can search it, and it was essentially titled "The World Cup is Sending a Wrong Message to Women," and it was about the kind of controversial issue of cameras searching out like purposefully in the crowd searching out for essentially pretty women in the crowd and putting them on screen and i basically explored what the purpose of that was and why it was a negative practice because i think to a lot of young men it's not obvious why that is a bad thing and i went through the reasoning with that and i got a fairly good response um you know i think it's it's a brilliant article there's a lot of sexism in this sport and that is that article like is is I think a really good explainer of, of why some of the sexist practices really do have negative effects in addition to just being morally incorrect. Well, I think that that whole article was amazing to me because I think uh, this is so. There's a lot just that is bad in the world. I would say things like this: the fact that we're at a stage now in society where we have the awareness where someone like Om is actually writing an article about it and everyone is positively reinforcing is his article, I think is, you know, these are the good things that are happening in the world. Like, it's just the awareness where, like, 10 years ago, no one would think that it's... It, it just totally makes no sense for us to zoom in on these women. Like, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. the fact that we actually have the awareness now, like, okay, look, you know what? We, we need to put our just these these tendencies and what we think is okay in society just aside like we there's a new like race of like human beings we need to kind of just mold here and it and we need to gut so many things out of our out of our nature and our culture to to get to where we are and we still have a long way to go but to me what i enjoyed about that article and the fact that you had so many positive comments is that you just like it's just a breath of fresh air when you think that everything's just stupid, you're like, oh, you know what? There's actually a lot of amazing people who exist who are trying to make a difference. So good job. I'm, I am I enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we should do patron shoutouts. Patreon.com slash Managing Madrid is where you go to pledge. Uh, you can you can pledge um, different amounts. You get different awards. I already gave you guys the spiel. I won't bore you with it, but... If you pledge $10 or more, you get a specific shout-out on the podcast. So shout-out to these $10 and up patrons. Nick DeStefane, uh, Frederick Sundros, Leon Stavronakis, 
Bjorn Salvador, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Sergio Monleon, Red Bat, Yahya Ibrahim, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Sheikh Atiri, Dan Berthy, Jahan Watson, Selvin Adolfo, Chamali Perez, Anas Alazawi, Raul Gutierrez, Armen Gashi, Raghav Botguri, Tyler Dixon, Vicky Cohen, new patron Vicky Cohen, welcome. Uh, Jason, oh, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, Jimmy Obey, Solomon Ortiz, Jeanette, and Daniel Smith. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for your support. Thank we you. appreciate it all. Om, thank you. Gabe, thank you. Please drive safe. Well, I guess Eleanor's driving, Thanks. but either way, safe travels, my friend. Um, I wish her I wish her your best. Thanks, buddy. Please do. Um, oh, I, please uh, send her my condolences about LeBron leaving Cleveland and the 30, 300 dark years that are about to follow. I will. <laughs> um, thank you, gentlemen, and Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions.